0: thanks again for tuning into the reptile living room I'm your host as always John F. Taylor, and today we are in the living room with none other than what I consider to be a uh, an American icon in the herpeticultural realm or reptile industry, depending on who you talk to and how you put it. Uh, none other than Mr. Tom Crutchfield uh, has been doing reptiles for i don 't even know how long uh, Tom is out in Florida has had a lot a lot of experience with various reptiles. Uh, importing, exporting, what have you. Uh, really great guy, really awesome, knowledgeable, just beyond belief. So, what else can you say? But it's Tom Crutchfield. I mean, do we need to say any more? Um, so, without further ado, here's Mr. Tom Crutchfield. I appreciate that. And so, we're on the line today with uh, none, other than, none other than Mr. Tom Crutchfield. Um, and I guess, Tom, the best place to start, uh, how did you get started in reptiles in the first place?
1: Well, I guess I never grew up. Um, I remember reading books about dinosaurs as a child. I was always an avid reader.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, of course, I was born uh, uh, in uh, Jackson County, Florida, which is in northern Florida, near Mariana. Mm -hmm. And there was an abundance of wild reptiles living in and around us in that little town, and they held a tremendous interest for me. And then as soon as I could, I checked out books in the library by people a lot of herpers don't even know exist today, which is unfortunate. Right. They don't even think they're important. But people like Raymond L. did, Mars, uh, Sherman Minton, God. Um, i trying to think of the other guy that had a lot of books out that was of real interest uh, to me, too. Uh, oh, Clifford Pope. Oh, okay. Um, like I said, a lot of the early writers, sort of, uh, Carl Caulfield was sort of later. Right. All of the other people that I've talked about were sooner
2: mm-hmm,
1: than mm-hmm. that. Uh, and then, of course... Uh, There were a lot of tourist attractions in Florida then that had reptiles. You know, like the Snakatorium was very close to where I was born. Oh, okay. And I made a point of visiting there all the time. I actually became friends with the owner, eventually worked there, and we remain good friends today. Wow. I met Ross Allen eventually. You know, I worked for him. He was one of my mentors also. He and Denny Sebalt, that owned Snakatorium. Wow. And, uh, you know... uh, yeah, I just became more and more interested instead of less and less. And, right. of course, I learned more and more about reptiles all the, time, all the while. hmm Back in those days, it's not like today where we had the Internet and we could just Google everything and find out all the information we had. Right. But it's basically a self-learning experience of what you learn from asking other people.
2: hmm mm-hmm.
1: Which I did an awful lot of.
0: Right, right. You know, and it's funny that you mentioned that because it seems like we've lost a lot of that today. with yeah, With I mean, all the technology. It's like obvious
1: uh, that the whole industry has lost all of the... Well, none of us anymore. Very few of us anymore have any of the, the, the baseline information like I had as a child.
2: Right, right.
1: I mean, I understood more about reptiles when I was fifteen years old than most Surpers do today. Yeah, because I had all the baseline stuff.
0: Exactly, exactly. Now, so, I mean, I
1: had a guy, one of a fairly savvy ball python breeders who you knows every morph. Uh huh. And I asked him, uh, I said, "What country? Do you, do you know what countries ball pythons come from?" And he said, "Sure." I said, "Where, where, where are they?" He goes, "Um, they they come from the country of Africa. I said, excuse me? And he said, Africa. I said, you think they come from the country of Africa? (laughs) And he goes, yes. I said, do you realize that Africa is a continent that's made up of hundreds and hundreds of countries? (laughs) And he goes, well, no, but both pirates come from Africa. I said, no, they die. I said, they occur from Africa, yes, but they occur sort of in the armpit of Africa in really only about eight or nine different countries. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, places like the and Togo and uh, Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast and, uh, and uh, Liberia and Nigeria. And he goes, well, where are they at? I said, they're countries in Africa. <laughs> and so that's the kind of thing I have to contend with. Wow. <laughs> and so sometimes it's uh, on the telephone it gets hard.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> Now, what was the first reptile species that you can remember keeping as a when you were a youngster?
1: Well, like uh, ringneck snakes, probably. Oh, okay. Because I could, I could, I found them in the yard. That rough scale green snake, of us and right. we had black racers also living in and around the yard. I caught those. I'd corn snakes if I was really lucky. Oh, well, okay. And then when I learned how to snake hunt, then of course I found pretty much everything found in Jackson County. Right, right. And uh, the first things that I had that I kept the longest were alligators. Really? Um, yeah, my mother. Wow, you didn't. Uh, somehow they came like Florida alligators for me when I was six, or seven years old, and I had those right on up until after I graduated from high school, and I eventually gave them to Ross Allen. Wow, as large adult alligators. Wow. But I raised them from tiny babies.
0: Man, that that's uh, that's pretty impressive. I must say, owning alligators at that, that young of an age. Wow. Now, who was your biggest inspiration for choosing uh, to stick with reptiles?
1: Um, people like Ross Allen, uh, Marlon Perkins. Um, wow,
0: Marlon Perkins. Okay, there's um, one I
1: remember. All those people were heroes to me. Right. Uh, I got to know some of them personally, like Denny Seabolt, Ross Allen pretty well, Dr. williford T. Neal.
0: Wow. Um,
1: I actually discovered Queen Water Snakes in Florida, in Jackson County, Regina Septimbatana. Uh-huh. And I knew that they weren't supposed to occur there, and the next time I was in Silver Spring, uh, I may, went by Ross Allens and told them about it, and Wilfred and T. Neal came up and they actually did a paper on a range extension on them there. Oh so I actually dear. got to talk to some of the people that were my heroes, thank goodness. Wow. thing to be able to do.
0: No kidding.
1: And I knew Bill Hoss real well, of course, but, but I didn't know him as well as the others.
2: hmm hmm
1: The so-called famous Florida Saints. Think- Snake man, I should say. Right, right, definitely. And in the old days too, they were reptile dealers. You know, in the early days, like Bill Chase and Bill Smith of Ocala, Florida, Warren Prince, a lot of names people don't even know now. But, uh, Ray Singleton in Tampa.
0: Okay, that's that sounds uh, that rings a bell of those with people. me. Huh. Now, what are um, speaking of not knowing the names of our you know forebears of the herpeticulture industry? What are some of the major uh, Changes within the industry that you've seen personally since you started, you know, since you opened up, you know, Tom Crutchfield Reptiles so many years ago.
1: Lack of knowledge. Really? Yeah, okay. The knowledge base of people in the business has gone down. Wow.
0: Okay. And do you think that's just from um, lack of education or lack of
1: information I'm not sure available, what it is. or I mean, it's like the dumbing up of America? <laughs> uh, I don't think it's just in reptiles. I think it's in everything in general. Okay. I don't know if it's our information that we're taught in school. I mean, in school I can remember uh, geography, and because I like reptiles, I mean, even now I could probably, you know, fly through a jeopardy geography thing because I probably know the mountain range and the rivers of every single country in the world. Wow. That are in in a place that has reptiles anyway. Right. (laughs) Because I studied every place reptiles came from. I, I learned a lot about all those places. Right, right.
0: Now, um, <clears throat> what are um, what would you say is the most satisfying element of your work on a personal level?
1: most satisfying element is, um, I would say, is that I've always worked hard in this industry to get animals here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sometimes not always legal. Many many years ago, but but we wanted them to be in, you know, where we could breed them. We didn't. None of us did this for money. We didn't even smuggle stuff for money. We did it because we wanted the animals, and it wasn't just me. Uh,
0: right, I right. happened
1: to be one that got caught, but there are, are a lot of people today that are so-called uh, highly respected and pretend like that they never did any of that, and they did as much as I did. Right, right. Back in the day.
0: Right, uh, exactly,
1: exactly. I mean, the first bearded dragons uh, I imported into this country, actually legally, although they came from an illegal origin, uh, I brought them in from the Canary Islands. Uh, from a breeder there, from animals that had been smuggled from Australia, but they had bred so many that they had to get rid of them. And I bought 300 of
2: them.
1: And brought them in and introduced them to herpiculture probably in the 80s. And that was probably the biggest number of them. There were still people that were going and smuggling from Australia, small numbers of them. Uh But every single bearded dragon in this country came from illegal origins. Oh, definitely.
0: Yeah, most definitely. definitely. As
1: well as every other Australian reptile.
0: Right, right, because Australia's been closed for but I know, but it's not bad or good,
1: because nobody would smuggle any now. R- right, right. And it's just like alligators, once we made alligator farming legal, then that took all the, uh, nobody poached alligators anymore.
2: Right, right.
1: And, of course, the alligator success story uh, reads like a storybook fantasy, almost, in terms of how they came back in big numbers. Right, right, exactly. But it was because of the alligator farms, not in spite of them.
0: Right. Right. It was because of you know, legalizing it and making it available right. to the to the public right. at large that the numbers started coming back because there wasn't people out there you know running around chasing, shooting, exactly. and everything else. Now, in your opinion, uh, Mr. Crushfield, what would be the hardest part about achieving um, success within the herpeticulture industry?
1: What's the hardest part of it? Uh-huh. Again, it's knowledge. Okay. I mean, there's probably not a reptile or amphibian in this world that you couldn't tell me the common name of, and I could tell you the scientific name without thinking about it. Wow. I could also tell you where it comes from, almost every single thing about it. But you have to have that knowledge to be able to be successful, and not that many people have it anymore. Right, right. I, in fact, am an endangered species and a dinosaur.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I go with the dinosaur part, but I'm... I'm Definitely with you on the endangered species list. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: there's just not, I mean, it's just the knowledge base is just going down, down, down. Right. We're we're basically almost now like tropical fish keepers. Right, right. Where everybody knows what a gourami is, but nobody knows anything about a gourami in nature.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, the uh, natural history of the animals has been lost.
1: Right, completely gone. Okay, that makes sense. Whereas that's what we all learn. Right. And that's how we know how to keep them.
0: right. Now, um, <clears throat> what led you to begin working with the venomous species that you currently...
1: Uh... Well, I mean, I, I, of course, with Ross Allen and uh, Denny Seabullet's Snakitorium, they always had venomous snakes there. And venomous snakes, I've always thought, were incredibly beautiful. Right. And we we had, uh, in Jackson County, we had four venomous snakes that lived there. Unfortunately, we did not have canebrake rattlesnakes, nor did we have Copperheads, even though they were found close to us.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're not
1: found in Jackson. County, but I uh, I saw cottonmouths and, and venomous snakes, and when I was 11 years old, I found on a snake hunting uh, trip about a three-foot eastern diamondback, which I caught and wow. brought home and, of course, immediately got in big trouble over it. <laughs> And I, I, they wanted to kill it, but I insisted on I go back out and release it, which I did, so mm-hmm. I got in serious trouble over that. yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, when you started uh, Crutchfield Reptiles, mm-hmm. how large was the actual facility back then?
1: Well, Crutchfield Reptiles, the first business I had was Herpetophonic Incorporated.
0: Oh, you, I do apologize, sir. You know, it was I back a
1: long, long, long time, back in i remember about 1980 or the late 1970s. Right. But I, but I was doing it long before then. Right, right. Just without a business name. Oh, okay. But Herpetophonic got very large. At one time, it was probably the largest... Um, Probably the largest uh, reptile facility in the world, I would say. Wow. And even the crocodile farm that uh, Robbie Kesey and them are on now, you know, his his mother bought the property from me.
0: Right, I was going to ask you you about that.
1: That was was very large. That was 40 acres in and to itself. Oh, my God. I mean, it still is, but they don't have nearly the number of crocodilians now that I have. Right, right. Nor, Nor the number of species.
0: Right, right. Now, how many, that was my next question, actually, is how many physical species...
1: The most, the most I ever had, personally, was 19.
0: Really? Okay.
1: So there are 23 amazing. in the world. And I've managed to breed 11 different species of crocodile Oh, my God. That's just... Man.
0: Now, have you... I'm sure you have, but um, what are some of the uh, zoos and things that you've provided animals
1: for or, or God, worked with? Every major zoo in this country. <laughs> that's my <what I> thought. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to be the answer. Right. <laughs> Pretty much every major zoo.
0: Wow, oh, that's a, amazing. Now, as far as um, the species on hand now that you're working with, mm-hmm. how many different species are currently?
1: Um, We're probably working with, I don't know, probably more, we probably have more different kinds of animals than anyone.
2: What yeah. I don't
1: have are the big numbers like some of the people have. I mean, I mean, I know guys like Bill Brandt uh, has a huge operation now. I mean, we've been friends for 40 years and uh, he probably produces, I don't know, 50,000 snakes a year Holy or God. reptiles a year. Now, I have no desire to do anything like that. Right. And I would rather keep things that I like, and I just simply won't breed large-scale numbers of collar snakes or even ball pythons, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Even when I was into ball morphs and all that, I only produced about 50 clutches a year. Wow. Uh, the only thing we're going for numbers for are, uh, are the albino green lines. Oh, okay. But, but we breed a lot of different kinds of snakes. There's probably uh, 10 or 12 just venomous species we're working with. Um, of the, I don't I don't really breed the big, big pythons because the guys that want to buy the big pythons are the young guys. Right. And um, unfortunately, I was a young guy one time, and I bought what well, it was, unfortunately, I'm glad it was. But, uh, uh, I mean, that's the first thing I wanted was big pythons. But it was a different time then. Right. And when we bought big pythons in, we understood what we were getting. And we also understood how to take care of them. You didn't see people killed and having them released and all that sort of thing. Right. Like you do now. Right. There again, that comes to the lack of knowledge part of it.
0: Exactly. Our
1: knowledge base is going down. So the only species of uh, the large snakes that I breed are Mm -hmm. Python malurus malurus. For nostalgic reasons, the real Indian pythons, the pure ones. Right, not the. And right, not the hybrids. No, the 100% pure ones. And I breed Python Maluris timbura from Sri Lanka. Huh.
0: Okay.
1: And I have a pair of green anacondas that are getting really big, and I'm getting ready to. They're outside anyway, but I'm getting ready to to build a giant outdoor enclosure with a natural pond in it for them. Right. And but but, but I'm not doing it just to breed them. I'm doing it so I can just go and look at them. Wow! I mean, how impressive it is to see a 200-pound anaconda basking on a bank outside.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh...
1: You know, with a tongue <laughs> that sort of thing. Because I'm basically retired, or, or as much retired as I'll probably ever get.
0: Right, right, okay. Now, uh, as far as amphibians go, what type of stuff are we talking about there?
1: I don't really have much in the way of amphibians. I've never been a big amphibian person. I've had, of course, you know... Almost of thousands of them. of them, and I don't know how many <laughs> different kinds. It's hard exactly, to say, hundreds, maybe thousands. Right. Um, Patty has beautiful um, Australian uh, dumpy tree frogs, the bright blue ones. Oh, okay. And she's working with those, and she has a real nice pair of budget frogs she keeps, and she has a giant uh, male uh, *Pithecopus versus*. You know, the groove crown bullfrog from Africa. Right, but right. The big one, not the small species you see around so Right. Instead of being bred, but the big one. South
0: Africa, right? The huge ones that would yeah, like eat right. rats. You know,
1: those are not the ones that are commercially produced. And so right. African bullfrogs. Wow. That's another uh, species of fixed Wow. It'll the name will come to me in a minute.
0: Sure, sure. Now, because um, I'm sure you've bred, you know, everything. A lot. <laughs> that, yeah. You know you, that, that you could possibly want to. Is there anything that you haven't worked with yet that you're still wanting to work with?
1: Well, the only thing that I really regretted never breeding, and I had them for over twenty-five years working with them, and I got eggs twice, but I didn't hatch any. Were false gavials. Tell oh, me, really, the Schleglein. And I wish that I had bred those. That's the only thing I've ever tried to breed that I wasn't successful at. Wow. That I have. Uh, there are certain species of sakura that I've never had that I wouldn't mind having and I would mind breeding.
2: hmm
1: mm-hmm. uh, But it's unlikely that I will. Right, right. You know, because they're seriously endangered and just, you know, some of them there's so few that I wouldn't want to take any from the wild anyway. Right, right, exactly. I mean, there needs to be breeding programs set up for them, you know, in situ or near where they live and so forth uh-huh. to ensure their long-term survival. And I, and I am involved in uh, several conservation programs uh, Plans now with Loma Linda University. We're doing a thing with Bimini boas, really, and then, yeah, uh and insight research project. Wow, uh, there because they're dropping in numbers like crazy, and we want to know why.
0: Wow, now this brings up kind of an interesting point um, as far as working with Loma Linda University, mm-hmm. and I I already know the answer, <laughs> yes. but I have to ask it anyway. Okay, what is the major? Hold up, because it seems like when herpetoculture first started, with you know gentlemen like yourself, you know uh, Bruce and you know Bob Applegate and all these folks, there was a communication between the science community or herpetology, you know, and then right I've, and I a lot of
1: back in the in the day.
0: Right, and now it's like there's this giant void.
1: Yeah, is That's it again
0: that. go back to the same thing?
1: It's, it's unfortunate that there is, and uh, even back when I was doing it in the '80s, there was a—we uh, were really all working together.
0: Right, right.
1: And uh, zoos, universities, and private people.
0: Yeah, exactly. And now all
1: of a sudden, private collectors, which are actually in, in most cases far more advanced in, in, in herpeticulture than any zoo. Uh huh. And certainly more than any university. Right. But Loma Linda uh, asked me to do a paper there, which I did uh, on. Uh, an overview of the West Indian genus Epicrates, uh, okay. the boas in the Caribbean, which I'm an expert on have been, and have been studying and working with for God over 30 years now.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, they asked me would I be involved in this project, you know, as an advisor, and I agreed. And uh, so it, it's worked out very well. Wow. And they've sort of reached out and said, "Hey, this is what we should do," not push, you know, the herpetoculturist away. Right. But get them to help us in bona fide conservation projects. Right, it's exactly. Because they have information that we don't have. Right, Which right.
2: Which is true. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. they know an awful
1: lot about the wild ones. Right. I mean, Bill has been studying them for 20-plus years. hmm God bless him. I mean, he's single-handedly probably saved Riley I, uh, uh, the, I think Riley I, New Chalice, or, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Riley I, from Extinction. Wow. By camping there a whole year and killing the, there was one or two raccoons. They, they'd taken up a residence there. Uh-huh. And they had killed off, I mean, they were down to ten females in the world left. Right. God, it's amazing. So they took off one summer I know, with help, and uh, they destroyed the raccoons. Right. But we need to make sure that never happens again.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we
1: have a backup, similar to what we have in, in Grand Cayman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I bred, I bred Grand Cayman, Iguana, Cyclero I years before they were even interested in them. Right. I mean, the AZA did, even though all the Cyclero existed. I gave a paper in uh, Oklahoma City at the IHS, meeting, one on courtship and nesting behavior in hmm
2: And
1: then after that, I gave an impromptu paper just from memory on all of the different species. <laughs> this is before colii was rediscovered. Really? And... Um, there seemed to be more of an interest after that. I also did a paper at the SSAR on breeding Sakura Cornida. Okay. And on breeding Sakura I. And at the IHS also in San Diego. Wow. So before that, there was very little interest in Sakura, which live right next door to it.
0: Right, right. Now, <clears throat> as far as... Um, The shows and stuff like that, do you do shows any longer? I I
1: don't do shows anymore.
0: Okay, I didn't
1: think so. The last show that I did was the uh, National Reptile Breeders Expo last year.
0: Right, and that was in In Florida.
1: Right, Daytona. Mm -hmm. And and even before, that was the only show I ever did that's just that one show.
2: Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I'm not even
1: doing that anymore. Wow. There's no purpose to it. Right. It's uh, it's tiring. You just stand there the whole three
2: days.
1: The people that are at the show there are primarily there because no one knows who they are. And they're trying to get exposure, and so they're competing on who can sell their animals for the least price. And, you know, I'm not into that, so... Right. I would just assume, uh, and I don't need it, certainly, to make money, so... Right, right. Now, um, I am going to the show, though, I mean, because I see a lot of my friends there.
0: Oh, sure, and sure. And I'm doing
1: two papers at the show this year, on West Indian Boas, in fact.
0: Oh, really? So you're presenting two papers at the Daytona yes. uh, 2011 show? Wow. Okay. Very nice. Now, <clears throat> now, as far as this, um, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, some of the legislation and things that are uh, currently going on with, of course, the Python ban and and what have you. Right. What's has that had any effect, or will that potential ban have any effect on Tom Crutchfield reptiles at all, or do you? Use well, I future?
1: don't. I don't think it will have as much effect on me as other people because I'm not selling that same kind of thing anyway.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <clears throat> I mean, I don't breed. I don't breed even boa constrictors. I breed just the West Indian boa. Right, right. But for the same token, it's going to be a huge blow to herpeticulture and for absolutely no reason. Right. I mean, it's all silly.
0: Yeah. The exactly. The whole thing is silly. Yeah, it does seem that way, definitely.
1: I know. I mean, these animals aren't overrunning the glades. There's absolutely no proof they're even damaging the everglades in any way.
0: Right, right. Now, uh, why do you think it is that some people actually fear snake or fear reptiles, let's put it that way?
1: Well, I think it starts back from, you know, basically teachings from the Bible. I mean, at the very right. beginning, uh, with the so-called, quote, serpent, uh, the Eve to offer uh, Mm -hmm. Adam a bite of the apple, if you will. Right, right. Uh, He should have just bit Eve and let it go at that. But regardless, I I think it goes back to that, and I think that just the animal looks so different than other animals. Mm -hmm. You have an animal without legs. Right, an animal looks totally unlike. You know, we we can identify with mammals of almost any kind, but particularly, I mean, the closer the animal is to us, the more we seem to like it. Right, okay. You know, if it's a primate, we have a tendency to like it a lot more than, say, an anteater. But
2: mm-hmm. so okay. when you get
1: with a snake, an animal that's so alien to what we look like, not only that, but if you step on it, it can not only kill you. Can you imagine the fear that our, that our you know, the Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal man or an Australopithecine had of this small snake on the ground that they step on and either kills them or, or maybe causes their foot to rot off?
0: Yeah, that would do it.
1: So, can you imagine <laughs> the fear that they would have of this of this snake?
0: Wow! Yeah.
1: So I don't think that just started. No, I, mean, I think it's been around since there's been man. Right, right. Wow. And of course, you're learning that too. I mean, people <coughs> tell you, you know, you know, be afraid of snakes. You know what's happening, which is really unfortunate, too? What's that? That a lot of these shows on re- on animals anymore are actually teaching people that <clears throat> animals are incredibly dangerous. Hmm. Yeah. Instead of them being educational, like in the days of Marlon Perkins, Marlon Perkins and, and in the just... early days of Animal Planet, right? Uh, oh God, they're telling us that uh, every time it's, I was, I was eaten, or I'm alive, right. or uh, I forget the different fatal attractions, uh, oh, God. Yeah. all of these different uh, titles that have a tendency to make people think that if they see a wild leopard or a crocodile, instead of appreciating the beauty of it, that this thing is somehow going to kill them.
2: right?
0: Right, I totally agree with you. It's terrible. Yeah, it is very
1: definitely. And that's getting worse too.
0: Yeah, very definitely.
1: <clears throat> and if we bar younger people from having access to animals, mm-hmm. and like in baby pythons and all this sort of thing too, where are our future scientists going to come from? Wow. I. I mean, if you're if you're not going to be allowed to have any contact with nature, huh? I mean, all of us killed stuff when we were little because we didn't know any better. Right, but a lot of us did kill all that stuff that we had. We grew up, and we did. We did a lot of things to protect nature, you know, and to protect wild things in, in nature. Right. By being able to have habit it in captivity. But if we stop that, what's going to happen? Where's our next group of scientists coming from?
0: Wow, for? I've never heard it, heard it put like that before. Now that I'm, I'm I mean, wow,
2: seriously, where is it coming? No,
0: from? you're you're damn right. I mean, that's just uh, I've never heard of. That way, and I'm just like I'm, just like dumbfounded now. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy if you actually think about it. That's really scary.
2: Wow,
1: it's very scary. I mean, where are our scientists coming from? How are we going to? When is, uh, is our next generation going to have an empathy for wildlife like we did? I don't think so. Wow. Now that we don't allow them to, there's less and less nature. If you have to drive further and further to find nature. Right. Okay. Most. The average person today, even that keeps reptiles, if you were to drop them in a real jungle, mm-hmm. they would be absolutely horrified. Lost. Now, and horrified. But me in a real jungle, I would go, wow, boy, I'm really happy now. <laughs> exactly. But, but if you drop the average person, even that keeps reptiles in a real jungle, they would be absolutely terrified.
0: Yeah, very definitely. Now, have you ever tried to sit down and actually think about how many man hours you spent in the field?
1: God, I don't know. <laughs> a lot. I mean, I was out every day. I take at least two hours and go out because I walk, you know, uh, just for exercise near the Everglades National Park. Since I can't bodybuild anymore, you know, with right. my back, right. I do a lot of walking, and we're always walking in wild areas hoping to see wild things.
0: Right, right. Which, which
1: we do see. I mean, we see crocodiles, I've seen bears, uh, deer, uh, uh, snakes, uh, lots of things. Yeah. I, mean, I don't take anything from the wild. Right, right. But I sure enjoy looking at it.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, speaking of the wild, um, have you ever worked with any uh, Komodos at all?
1: Um, I have handled a lot of Komodos in Asia. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, in fact, I'll probably be back in Komodo in, uh, in June.
0: You're going back, really? Yeah. Is this for a research project or just to go out? fun? No,
1: um, I have to go to Asia anyway. Oh, okay. I'm going to go back to Komodo one last time. Wow, that is awesome! And uh, <clears throat> I know you're. Um, oh, although c- although it looks like I may run into my old friend and protege Carl Persson. really, and uh, Brian Fry there too. So,
0: yeah, I just um, actually uh, at the last NERBC show, I was uh, actually um, lucky enough to catch up with Dr. Fry, and uh, he gave us an interview on his uh, mm-hmm. work with the Komodo dragons, and yeah, he was. Great guy,
1: man. Yeah. Just yeah. smart as a whip. He is and a great guy. So I may be running into him there. They want me to meet up with him at possible and it looks like it's going to maybe work out. But. Wow,
0: that would be very cool. Now, uh, before we let you go, uh, Mr. CrossFit, the last question I'd like to ask you is what are your thoughts on hybridization and crossbreeding? I don't like it. Oh, okay. I,
1: mean, I don't like any of it. Uh, It happens, and I mean, I can see people doing it, and I'm not saying that it's 100% wrong. Right. That's why we don't have pure Indian pythons anymore. Right, right. Because at one point, there were more Indian pythons in this country than Burmese pythons in the 70s. Because Burmese were extremely rare, and Indians were the animal that actually came in until about 1972. So there were a lot of them around for a long, long time, and now it's just to find any that are real pure. uh almost impossible. Right. Right. Wow, that's and just so. Whenever you <coughs> hybridize anything, I, I think it's a bad idea. Right. And I'm worried that some idiot's going to hybridize like Cuban iguana with a with a cornita. Oh God. Or something like that. That'll be the next thing. I hope not. Right. Then there won't be any more pure sakura anymore.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Cause it'll because just
1: some of these, some of these things, we're never ever going to get any more from the wild. Yeah, they're just like the Indian pythons, they're finished. Right. I mean, they're not even rare, but the powers of these say they are, so we're not going to get them. Right. And I mean, the cornuda is not all that rare, it's pretty common, actually, mm-hmm. but we're not going to get any. Right. And if you start uh, hybridizing those with, like, if you say that, you know, Cuban iguanas or anything like that, then I'm afraid over the next 20 years there won't be any pure cyclo anymore either. Right, right. Okay. So that's a good reason not to
0: do it. Yeah, very definitely. Now, um, what are, what would be the best advice if, <clears throat> if you were talking to a future breeder, you know, if someone just came up and said, you know, Tom, I want to breed reptiles. What would be the first or best piece of advice that you would give to them? Three
1: words. Education, education, education.
0: All right. <laughs> I
1: mean, you have to learn. You have to know all the basics. And
0: you have to learn it. Huge thing to do,
1: right? I mean, it really is.
0: Now, is there any way, because um, I know you know people like myself and you know um, some others are aware, very aware of who you are, you know, and who all the people that started this are. Is there any way that someone you know could apply for a position at Crestfield Reptiles and actually? Get hired on? Well, or? we
1: get we get have job openings sometimes. I have oh, few, okay. uh, employees now that I've had for a fairly, you know, reasonably long time for several right. years, but they're younger. It's a thing that doesn't pay a lot of money. Clean cases I think mean, we pay fifteen, ten, fifteen dollars an hour. So uh, employees not going to stay here forever, right? Right. You know, they're going to move on, hopefully to you know bigger and better things. Sure. I mean, Carl Persons is just at the point now where he's getting his PhD, and and he works in the original. Wow.
0: That is awesome.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know what I would say, too, when you're trying to breed stuff? You always remember that, uh, look at the animal that you're trying to breed, and think about this business as a pyramid. Okay, the first thing you have to look at is the customer base. How big is the customer base for the animal that you're going to breed? Okay. Okay, in other words, how many people will buy it?
2: Let's just take
1: the albino green iguana for one thing. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, last year there was uh, 800 and some odd thousand of them were imported into the United States, almost a million. So arguably the green iguana is probably the most popular pet animal in the United States. Right. Okay, if I can just get 1% of those people to buy albinos, then I'm set because of the customer base. But the more that you produce, the price comes down. Right. It's like on a pyramid, and you're going to make the most money... If you started at the top, when you're about in the middle of the pyramid, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: because at that point you have same many, many more people that can actually afford your product. Right. Like, like when I can afford to sell albino uh, iguanas for a thousand dollars each.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I could, if I could, I could sell two thousand easy at that price. Wow. But 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 more important than anything else, you should reach stuff because you love it.
0: Because you yep.
1: And exactly. you like it, and if you don't have a passion for it, what's the point? Right, right. I mean, I like regular green iguanas. I think they're great animals. I mean, I like iguanas anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, mean, I
1: bred rhinoceros iguanas first in the nineteen seventies. <laughs> wow. I mean, I was the guy that experimented, you know, or that uh, experimented with building the outdoor facilities and keeping them outside year round in southern Florida. Right, And right. it worked. Because back in the seventies, nobody bred rhinos. You didn't have thought to be impossible to breed cyclo.
0: Right.
1: I mean, zoo's never bred
0: them. No,
1: definitely not Not back yeah. then. And then we started to breed them every single year.
0: <laughs> and this is just from spending time in the field
1: and... and studying them, And yeah. studying
0: and, yeah.
1: Man, that's just amazing. Yeah, if all my, my early field work was almost all of us spent in the West Indies I feel like I could afford to actually travel to other places, you know.
0: Oh, oh sure, sure. Man, that's just amazing. And so there, you it, folks, that was uh, Mr. Tom Crutchfield of Crutchfield Reptiles. Um, Like I said, one of the American icons or probably one of the international icons of the uh, herpeticulture industry. Straight from Tom. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So there you go. You need your education. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know where the animals come from and uh, what their requirements are and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, there's nothing else to be said. That was uh, Mr. Tom Crutchfield of Crutchfield Reptiles. Uh, look forward to seeing you on the show uh, next week. Thanks again for tuning into the Reptile Living Room, and as always, I'm your host, John F. Taylor, and that was Mister Tom Crutchfield from Crutchfield Reptiles.